We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today we'll hear a conversation with Jordan Rayner. He's the author of Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. We'll also talk with Norbert Michel in the 5 o'clock hour. He's the director of the Center for Data Analysis. We're going to talk about what we know about the status of the pandemic, some data to put it into perspective and to contextualize it. He'll join us at the top of the next hour of today's program. So hope you'll stick around for that. Meanwhile, taking a look at some of the headlines, a New York City police officer was randomly attacked and stabbed in the neck late Wednesday while patrolling in Brooklyn, which resulted in a struggle that caused two additional officers to suffer gunshot wounds. It wasn't immediately clear if the incident was related to the unrest over the death of George Floyd. Police said at the early news conference Thursday that a preliminary investigation indicated a male suspect walked up to the officers, casually whipped out a knife. They said the officers involved had been assigned to an anti-looting post to prevent people from breaking into stores. The shooting happened in Brooklyn nearly four hours after the 8 p.m. curfew that was implemented to quell continued unrest over the death of Floyd, the 46-year-old man who died in Minneapolis in police custody on the 25th of May. Two additional officers were struck in the hand by gunfire during the incident, police said. They were rushed to Kings County Hospital and are expected to survive. Nearby officers later heard the gunshots and responded to find the suspect brandishing a gun that police said was likely taken from an officer. The suspect was shot uh, multiple times in the scene, which uh, uh, was described as chaotic. They uh, added that the 22 shell casings were recovered following the incident. News of the incident only heightened tensions in the city, already on edge from several days of violence and looting since Floyd's death sparked protests, riots, and looting nationwide, as well as peaceful protests, I should add. Police were out in droves in cities across the country Wednesday night to enforce curfews that were seen as helping reduce late-night rioting. Portland would be the exception in terms of curfews. And officials were hoping for a calmer night amid the ongoing unrest, which uh, we'll see um, with Mr. Floyd having been laid to rest earlier today, if that will continue or if it will Recede. Other related developments, Fed invest, uh, feds are investigating whether professional Antifa-linked agitators are exerting command and control over unrest. In other, wise, other words, a coordinated effort to uh, perpetrate unrest and violence. Former President Barack Obama, in a virtual town hall hosted by his foundation Wednesday, called on demonstrators to channel their anger over George Floyd's death into an opportunity uh, for pressure Uh, pressuring leaders into making real policy changes and compared current protests to the unrest in the 1960s. The town hall was hosted by the Obama Foundation's My Brother's Keeper Alliance, 
which supports young men of color. During the event, Obama said he rejected a debate that emerged in a little bit of a chatter on the Internet rather about voting versus protests, politics and participation versus civil disobedience and direct action. This is not an either or, he said. This is a both. And to bring about real change, we both have to highlight a problem and make people in power uncomfortable. But we also have to translate that into practical solutions and laws that could be implemented and monitored and make sure we're following up on it. Uh, The the former president also urged every mayor in the country to review their use of force policies with their communities and commit to report on planned reforms before prioritizing their implementation. I'm going to take just a moment and uh, lower the volume on some element of my computer that keeps chiming in. In other news, James Mattis, who served as President Trump's first defense secretary, excoriated the president in a statement to The Atlantic, published on Wednesday, urging Americans to reject and hold accountable those in office who would make a mockery of our Constitution, end quote. Trump issued his own blistering condemnation on Twitter late Wednesday, pointing out that then-President Obama removed Mattis as head of the U.S. Central Command in 2013, saying probably the only thing Barack Obama and I have in common is that we both had the honor of firing Jim Mattis, the world's most overrated general, end quote. The president went on to write, I asked for his letter of resignation and felt great about it. His nickname was Chaos, which I didn't like and changed it to Mad Dog. His primary strength was not military, but rather personal public relations. I gave him a new life, things to do and battles to win, but he seldom brought home the bacon. I didn't like his leadership style or much else about him and many others agree. Glad he's gone, end quote. Oh, is it just me or are you tired of the kind of the back and forth? I mean, you need to answer your critics, I suppose. You need to make a statement of your beliefs, but it seems a bit juvenile these days, so much of the back and forth. Anyway, some other um, items. Uh, George Floyd rested, uh, tested positive for the coronavirus, but showed no symptoms, according to the autopsy, among other things. And Rosenstein denied he suggested wearing a wire invoking the 25th Amendment against Trump. Well, the U.S. Uh, new weekly jobless claims uh, has uh, been falling below two million. And the president says the U.S. economy is in the early stages of coming back. Well, let's hope that's true. Well, Tom Cotton, uh, in an op-ed in The New York Times, said, send the troops in. Uh, the the uh, pace of looting and disorder may fluctuate from night to night, but it's past time to support local law enforcement with federal authority. Some governors have mobilized the National Guard, yet others refuse, and in some cases, the rioters still outnumber the police and guard combined. In these circumstances, the Insurrection Act authorizes the president to employ the military or any other means in cases of insurrection or obstruction to the laws. And the New York Times felt the need to explain to the New York Times elite mob why they ran an op-ed from a popular U.S. senator. New York Times staffers don't like people hearing of any opinion that isn't their own, so it was uh, somewhat unusual. Molly Heming- um, Hemingway, she says the most terrifying thing in recent days hasn't even uh, been the mobs, but leaders bowing down to mobs. You don't need to explain why you're running an op-ed from a duly elected U.S. senator making his case about the, a majority-supported opinion. Ben Shapiro says, perhaps my favorite thing about the idiotic New York Times employees enraged at the paper running an op-ed from a U.S. senator that happens to reflect the views of seven in ten Americans is that they're doing the stupid repeat this slogan after me tactic they learned in college. I never learned that tactic, so I'm not quite sure what that is. Meanwhile, the looting continued in L.A. In George Floyd's hometown, the protests were peaceful, and the family, describing themselves as a peaceful, uh, peaceful, God-fearing family, has called for calm. 
Uh, the media touted a study against hydroxychloroquine exposed as fraudulent. A Guardian investigation uh, revealed the U.S.-based company um, uh, producing the drug, whose handful of employees appear to include a science fiction writer and an adult content model, uh, has provided data for multiple studies on COVID-19 co-authored by its chief executive, but has so far failed to adequately explain its data or methodology. And yet it's being uh, quoted by the media. There's really no, uh, Dr. Uh, rather David Harsony says, there's really no other way to describe the manic reaction to a drug that has been widely, though anecdotally, seen to have therapeutic value against the coronavirus. Politicians have blocked attempts to study the drug. The number of shoddy pieces of journalism surrounding hydroxychloroquine is just remarkable, apparently, it is also dangerous. From another story, the studies produced by this company were published by Lancet, a renowned medical journal, and used as evidence to attack Donald Trump. Lancet has now issued an expression of concern demanding that the company provide details of their data and methodology. Given what's already been revealed, you'd think they'd uh, they just disown the studies altogether, but I suspect they want to save face. And finally, from the Wall Street Journal, Lancet editors last month published an editorial urging Americans to vote out President Trump. So it's fair to ask if political bias clouded their scientific judgment and caused their publication standards to slip. The World Health Organization's knee-jerk reaction to the study has also further undermined its scientific authority, though on Wednesday it said it is restarting its HCL trial. This uh, seemed to undermine confidence in what we're hearing and seeing under the label of science. Hmm. Black unemployment is skyrocketing due to the pandemic. It was at its highest level ever in our nation's history. It's now plummeted to the lowest in our nation's history. According to political, fewer than half of black adults are now employed. By the way, the, a the NBA is announcing um, that it's uh, firing uh, an individual for tweeting all lives matter. This is an announcer for the NBA. And the New York Post is shocked his remorse only goes so far. The story claims all lives matter is a phrase often used to belittle the Black Lives Matter movement. Some people in newspapers refuse to consider a phrase might just mean what the phrase actually says. And, of course, being offended has become an art form. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be back, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Jordan Rayner, author of Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. The book is published by Waterbrook. That's coming up in our next two segments. We'll also talk with Norbert Michel, director of the Center for Data Analysis. We'll talk about a new heritage um, system that gives us an opportunity to determine uh, the numbers as it relates to the pandemic. What do we know about the status of the pandemic? They can help. And some data to put it into perspective will be the subject of our conversation. Well, on this day in history, 1919, Congress approves the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, guaranteeing citizens the right to vote regardless of their gender and sends it to the states for ratification. 1942, the World War II Battle of Midway begins, resulting in a decisive American victory against Japan and marking the turning point of the war in the Pacific. 1990, Dr. Jack Kevorkian carries out his first public-assisted suicide, helping Janet Atkins, a 54-year-old Alzheimer patient from Portland, end her life in Oakland County, Michigan. On this day in history, 1998, a federal judge sentences Terry Nichols to life in prison for his role in the 1995 bombing of the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City. 
And on this day in history, 2015, the U.S. Office of Personnel Management releases information about a Chinese state security breach of its computer system, which comprised um, uh, compromised rather uh, data for four million Americans. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, the Supreme Court rules in favor of a Colorado baker who wouldn't make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. But it is a limited decision that doesn't address the larger issue of whether a business can invoke religious objections to refuse service to gay and lesbian people. Well, Oregon hasn't seen a coronavirus resurgence in the week since most counties began to reopen The state's top health official said on Wednesday, Oregon Health Authority Director Patrick Allen offered declining hospitalizations and infection rates as evidence that the spread of COVID-19 remains mild, even as new reported cases climbed slightly in recent days. He also credited Oregonians for taking steps to reduce their risk of infection, such as wearing face coverings in public and continuing to practice social distancing. He uh, said at uh, at the time during a news conference with Governor Kate Brown, I think it's safe to say our situation is stable. As stores, salons, and restaurants have reopened across the state, COVID-19 has not reemerged with renewed ferocity. Well, the official assessment comes as other states around the U.S., such as Texas, North Carolina, and Wisconsin, have seen steady increases in coronavirus infections and deaths after lifting lockdowns imposed at the beginning of outbreaks there. That is yet to occur in Oregon after the governor allowed most counties to gradually resume public and economic activity on the 15th of last month. 26 counties have applied to enter phase two of the state's reopening regimen that started on Friday with further eases uh, restrictions. Throughout the pandemic, Oregon has had one of the lowest infection and death rates in the country among known cases, while nearly 4,400 people have tested positive for COVID-19 since late February. Recent projections estimate more than 20,000, almost five times the number of identified cases have been infected. Well, among the states that have reopened um, their their economies about a month ago, most logged about the same number of COVID-19 cases, though some had more cases and others saw a decline. The closest thing to discernible pattern is that Western and Midwestern states performed better than Southern states in terms of fewer cases of uh, the disease caused by the uh, coronavirus. Even there, though, some southern states saw a decline or remained steady in the number of COVID-19 cases, according to data from the Kaiser Family Foundation. The increase in new diagnosed cases offers only a glimpse of how each state is doing. In 47 states, hospitalization for COVID-19 either has been flat or has decreased, according to Dr. Lee Gross, president of Docs for Patient Care, a healthcare advocacy group. As testing expands, the number of confirmed cases will increase, he points out, and the most notable measurement is of serious cases. The key is not to focus on just the number of cases, but how seriously ill people are, he says. He practices family medicine in Northport, Florida. Uh, There are many uh, diseases that don't shut down the economy for months. The only three states with increasing hospitalization rates for COVID-19 are Hawaii, Rhode Island, and Wisconsin. Wisconsin reopened its economy on May 8th. Rhode Island reopened on the 13th. Hawaii didn't do so until the 31st of May, so there may not be a clear pattern. Wisconsin, which came back the earliest of the three, had the biggest increase, according to Dr. Gross. And uh, those numbers and, and cases, of course, are being closely followed. But the testing may or may not tell us everything we need to know. Well, Governor Kate Brown um, in Oregon today announced details about phase two of reopening under the, her framework for building a safe and strong Oregon. There are 31 counties that can apply now to enter phase two on Friday, June the 5th. 
said the uh, governor during the press conference. I want to say thank you to each and every Oregonian who has made sacrifices to protect the health and safety of our communities. Your leadership, you choose to be both kind and smart, is why we have been able to start the reopening process. Any reopening, the governor said, comes with risk. That's just a fact of life right now. So we need to reduce the risk that comes with reopening. So fellow Oregonians, you have another chance to shine, a chance to show that you are looking out for your friends, family, and neighbors. End quote. Well, the Oregon Health Authority is reviewing the COVID-19 metrics and data for counties that have applied for phase two. And on June the 4th, the governor's office will announce the initial counties entering phase two. I didn't hear yet if that's uh, been the case. Phase two continues uh, the county by county approach to reopening counties. Uh, to reopening, rather. Counties can uh, be approved to enter phase two only if they have been uh, in phase one, that would exclude Multnomah County, or at least 21 days, and are succeeding in controlling the spread of the virus. Counties approved to enter phase two must continue to meet phase one metrics with a few additional metrics as well. That would include demonstrating that they are able to trace new cases within 24 hours. As counties see new cases, they must be able to identify way where they are coming from uh, for at least 70% of the time, and counties cannot be experiencing a significant increase in cases. Gathering limits will be raised to 50 people indoors, 100 people outdoors. Indoor and outdoor venues, including theaters and churches, will, uh, with six feet of physical distancing and other measures in place, can reach a COVID-19 occupancy uh, limit of up to 250. Offices can begin reopening and employees can return to workplaces with physical distancing and other measures in place, though remote work is still strongly recommended wherever possible. Increased travel will be allowed throughout Oregon, though staying local is still recommended to prevent overloading county health systems. And restaurants and bars will have curfews extended to midnight. Pools and sports uh, courts will be allowed to reopen under new guidance. Indoor and outdoor activities such as bowling, batting cages, mini golf, will be allowed to reopen under new guidance, and recreational sports can resume in a limited form under strict physical guidance. Um, some additional statewide guidance for all counties, including those remaining in Phase 1, are on a baseline uh, status. Zoos, gardens, and museums can reopen in a limited fashion, and professional and collegiate sports teams can return to training in their facilities with physical distancing and health and safety measures in place. So Oregon is moving forward uh, it's uh, it's good to know. Well, the Willamette Week is reporting that Maloma County is still on track to reopen on the 12th of June. Some had questioned whether or not that would be the case with some of the demonstrations that took place in Multnomah County and are continuing. The Board of Commissioners uh, reaffirmed today that the county is on track to begin reopening on the 12th of June. Officials from the county's public health department told the board that uh, the county is making steady progress toward meeting the goals the state and board set for reopening. Multnomah County, the state's most populous and densely populated county, will be the last Oregon uh, county to reopen. One example of progress toward uh, meeting state benchmarks, the county now has 63 case uh, investigators, contract tracers on board, which is 55 percent of the 120 tracer goal the state established. The director of communicable diseases services said the county received more than 1,600 applications for contact tracing positions and expects to build its staff to 133 in short term. So Multnomah County may be lagging behind, but we're apparently 
on our way. In uh, the state of Washington, six counties have applied to move to the third phase of Washington State's four-stage reopening plan that eases COVID-19 restrictions and allows businesses to start to reopen, the governor's office said on Wednesday. Mike Falk, who's a spokesman for Governor Jay Inslee, said applications to the Department of Health have been submitted to uh, Ferry, Stevens, Penn, Lincoln, Columbia, and another county. They are uh, among those uh, counties that uh, are under review. They are among the 27 counties that are currently in phase two, which allows the restaurants and taverns there to reopen at half capacity with limited table sizes, hair and nail salons, barbershops to resume business, and retail stores to reopen for in-store purchases at 30% capacity. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Jordan Rayner, author of Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, imagine, if you will, how different your life would be if you spent your days doing the very thing that brings you the greatest joy. Well, most people spend their days making minimal progress in a million different directions, competent at many things, but exceptional at none of them. But what if you could shift your focus from a million options to one? Well, these are questions that are posed in the book we're going to talk about, Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. Entrepreneur, thought leader, and best-selling author Jordan Rayner, he reveals the exponential power of pursuing a singular craft or calling. Through practical principles, inspiring stories, a gospel-centric writing, he provides the four steps, explore, choose, eliminate, and master for finding and thriving in your one thing. Whether someone is at a turning point in their career or already doing work that makes them come alive, Master of One will inspire readers to become a world-class master in their craft. He lays a foundation for a path to mastery, and he deftly exposes and refutes three of the most common and pervasive lies about work and calling. The first, you can be anything you want to be. The second, you can do everything you want to do. And the third, your happiness is the primary purpose of work. Well, Jordan Rayner is a national best-selling, a bestseller, I should say best-selling author of Called to Create. He leads a growing community of Christians seeking to more deeply connect their faith with their work. In addition to his writing, he serves as the executive chairman of the tech startup Threshold 360, where he previously served as CEO after launching a string of successful ventures. A highly sought-after speaker on the topic of faith and work, he's spoken at Harvard University, SXSW, Q Ideas, and many other events around the world. He has twice been selected as a Google Fellow and served in the White House under President George W. Bush. Now, I could go on because there's much more to be said, but I think you'd like to hear from him. I will mention that he is a sixth-generation Floridian. He lives in Tampa with his wife and their three daughters, and we are delighted to have you with us here today. Welcome. Georgine, I'm so glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about um, uh, what you see as the purpose of of work. Now, it's a necessity for most of us in order to survive and hopefully thrive. But what is the purpose of work? That's such a good question to start the conversation. I think too many people, even many Christians, view work as a meaningless means to an end, right? We go to work to collect a paycheck to move on to the truly meaningful things in life. And that is not at all the biblical picture of work. I think John Mark Comer right there in Portland Mm -hmm. has written really eloquently about this, right? The Bible is the only religious text that says that God himself 
created was productive, worked, if you will. Every other religion says the gods created human beings to work and serve the gods, but Christianity starts with a god who himself created. And then, Georgine, as you know, he created us in his image and called us to create and fill the earth through our work, right? So work is not meaningless. It's one of the most meaningful things that we do, because when we do it, we have an opportunity to glorify our Father. And if that's true, I would argue that we Christians ought to have the highest standards for excellence in our work. The purpose of work is the purpose of life, right? To glorify God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And I believe, as I outlined in this book, the opposite of mastery is mediocrity, hmm. right? And mediocrity is nothing short of a failure of love of our neighbor. And I think a misrepresentation of our father. And so in Master of One, what we're talking about is, all right, how do we do our best work, focusing primarily on God's glory and the good of others? Mm. There's conventional wisdom that we are to follow our passions and do whatever Mm -hmm. makes us happy. In Master of One, you challenge that conventional career advice and uh, so-called wisdom. Respond. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm a millennial, right? I I grew up hearing this advice from my parents follow your passions, follow your dreams, do whatever makes you happy. Uh, and it turns out this is garbage uh, advice. Uh, mostly <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work, right? So millennials, I think we can all agree, more than any other generation, we have had more opportunity to, quote, do whatever makes us happy vocationally. And Gallup tells us that we are the least happy generation at work. Why aren't more people questioning why this advice is so prevalent, right? And in the book, in Master of One, I talk about why this advice is failing us. I talk about a bunch of different academic studies that show that the number one predictor of describing your work as a calling is not whether or not you're passionate about the work before you started it. It's the number of years you have spent practicing the craft, right? Passion is a side effect of mastery. We get to love what we do by getting really good at it, which, oh, by the way, Georgine, shouldn't come as a surprise to Christians, right? We are called to model our lives after the one who came not to be served, but to serve. Follow your passions focuses pretty much exclusively on what I want, what, what, what value a job can give me. And I believe a much more effective and God-honoring strategy is to follow your gifts, Focus on the work that you can do uh, exceptionally well as a means of making others happy. Uh, That seems to be the most predictable path to finding work that we will also love, and not just fall in love with, but stay in love with over a long period of time. Mm. Now, early in in a working career, it's very difficult to know what you're gifted at, what you do well, and what to focus on. Um, you give some examples uh, of uh, some of the experimentation from your own career that helped you to hone in on what is it that uh, you wanted to master and what would um, be something you could master. Can you share some of your um, some of your <laughs> examples? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, early in my career, especially in college, I was the quintessential jack of all trades and master of none. Right? And I, I should say in the front end. I have no problem being described as a jack of all trades. Uh, I think that's the inevitable byproduct of discerning your calling. I have a big problem being described as a master of none. I think as Christians, there ought to be something we can point to to say, yeah, you know what? I'm mastering that in service of neighbor. But you know, just in college, man, I experimented rapidly. I had a different internship every semester. I worked at the White House. I played piano for tips at a, at a, local, uh, at a local dive in Tallahassee. 
Florida. Uh, I was working part-time for a tech startup. I was selling newspapers door-to-door. Uh, so just tons of part-time jobs, tons of internships. Uh, and I think there's a really valuable lesson here, right? It, 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 it's, it's to place little bets, especially when you're early in your career. Try a lot of different things because when you're young, you have no idea what you're going to be good at, right? You have no clue. And so as I argue in the book, what we should be looking for in our career before we commit to something to master vocationally is where are we going to be really gifted? What are the activities that we are drawn to that we're just naturally gifted at? Uh, and that's where to pour you know, more water uh, onto that seed that's starting to sprout up and starting to produce fruit in your career. Now, for the for the book, Master of One, you interviewed a lot of people in various types of uh, positions to see how they discerned their calling and became masters of their crafts. Now, were there uh, key questions that uh, that you had to repeat in order to in these interviews in order to glean from them uh, what thread they might all share in common? Yeah, that's such a good question. So, uh, you know, we did go out, we interviewed a lot of people, a lot of Christ followers from a lot of different lines of work. Tony Dungy, the NFL Hall of Fame coach. Uh, we talked to uh, Mr. Rogers' biographer. Uh, we talked to Sharon Watkins, who is the uh, whistleblower at Enron, who is a Christ follower. And all of these people tended to ask a few questions when discerning what their one vocational thing was. Uh, first question is, what were they passionate about? What were they naturally interested in? Uh, number two was, what gifts had God given them? Uh, and number three was, you know, where do I have the very best opportunity to glorify God and serve others. So not the right opportunity, not the perfect opportunity, but the best opportunity. And out of all of those questions, the people I talked to tended to gravitate towards the second one the most, right? So not focusing primarily on passions, but focusing on giftedness. And again, that jives really well with what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, right? Passion follows mastery. So while passions uh, can point, uh, can be really interesting signposts, uh, to help us figure out what we might be gifted at, they're not the end-all, be-all. I think a lot of people you know, uh, take a job today and expect to find cosmic-level happiness in that <laughs> career for a long period of time. It's just not how it happens, right? You've got to stick with something long enough to get great at it, like you've done with your radio broadcasting career, Georgine, right? Uh, in order for true, sustainable, soul-level satisfaction, I think, to sit in. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we will most definitely continue this conversation. Again, we're talking about the book Master of One. Jordan Rayner, my guest, will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Jordan Rayner. He's a best-selling author and most recently the author of Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. Let's revisit this notion of mastery. What is the purpose of mastery? That's such a good, good question. So we talked a few minutes ago about uh, the purpose of work, mm-hmm. right? The purpose of work being to glorify God, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, and if we believe that as Christians, right, then the purpose of mastery uh, is to do that well, right? So I, I wholeheartedly believe that the opposite of masterful work uh, is good, adequate, often mediocre work. Uh, and mediocrity is a failure of love of our neighbor. Nobody feels loved. 
when they receive a mediocre, substandard product or service, right? We should all care about doing our most masterful work as possible because that's how we love our neighbors ourselves. And oh, by the way, uh, it's how we glorify God. You know, glorify is a word that we throw around a lot in the church, and uh, it, it can lose its meaning sometimes within the church. I love how John Piper defines glorify as simply reflecting God's greatness to the world. I, I, I think that's a really good way yes. to think about that word. And if that's true, if we care about reflecting his greatness, uh, we got to look around creation and see how God worked, see how God created with the utmost perfection, something we can never attain. But we can at least strive for mastery. We can at least strive for excellence. And that should be the driving force in all of us that makes us ambitious to do our best work, again, for the glory of God and the good of others. Now, can you explain the difference between mastery and perfection? There are those who strive uh, for perfection, and that becomes an obsession that's never satisfied. That's such, a good, that's such a good question. I talk about this in the book. I think we as Christians are called to the pursuit of mastery, to the pursuit of excellent work, not necessarily the outcome. I can find no support in Scripture for us being demanded to produce uh, or obtain mastery or excellence, and certainly not uh, perfection, but I think it is in the journey. I think it is in the striving of seeking to do our very best work. So mastery does not equal perfection. We as Christians uh, never attain that in any aspect of our lives, including our work. Uh, but I think the striving for excellence and our absolute best selves in every area of life is biblical, right? First Corinthians 10.31 tells us to do everything for the glory of God. And again, if we believe that that means reflecting his greatness, I believe that means a wholehearted commitment to our most exceptional selves in every aspect of our lives, including our work. Now, in the book, Master of One, you point to C.S. Lewis as an example of someone whose one vocational thing was broad. Um, uh, Can you tell us about that and the difference between someone's one thing being broad or specific? Yeah, that's a terrific question. So I, yeah, I think when, when a lot of people uh, hear master of one, they're intimidated by this concept. How in the world can I just master one thing? I know I was intimidated uh, by that early in my career when I first heard this phrase. And I, I talk about this in the book. You know, some people's one thing is going to be super specific. So my mother-in-law, her name is Sheila. Sheila's one thing uh, is a very specific role. She has been the director of children's choral music at Idlewild Baptist Church for 33 years, right? And not surprisingly, <laughs> she's world-class at what she does. But her one thing super specific. I think most people's one thing is very broad, like C.S. Lewis's. Uh, so I was having a conversation with Lewis's stepson, who's become a good friend of mine. His name's Douglas Gresham. And he really helped me shape my thinking on this topic. I was telling Doug, I was like, hey, your stepfather appeared to be a master of many things, right? Lewis was a great writer of fiction, a great writer of nonfiction. He was a talented radio broadcaster on the BBC. He taught at Oxford. I was like, Doug, he was a master of many things. And he corrected me. He's like, absolutely not, Jordan. Uh, Lewis was very clear that his one vocational gift was teaching, right? That was a broad one thing that he applied in multiple contexts. But according to his stepson, C.S. Lewis was very deliberate in everything he did about cultivating the art of becoming a great teacher. Mm. That was his one thing uh, that he applied to multiple contexts. So I found that to be uh, tremendously freeing. It's still a really helpful lens 
to think about your career because it still eliminates a bunch of other things from your professional plate uh, when you're able to articulate that one broad Yeah, call. yeah. Well, I really appreciated that. That is clarifying. Now, in Master of One, you interviewed dozens of world-class professionals for the book, which in and of itself is fascinating. Were there <laughs> themes that came up over and over again that show how we might achieve mastery in our own careers? Yeah, so there's a whole chapter dedicated mm-hmm. to answering that question, right? Uh, we we you know, we had a team researching God's Word. We did interviews, studied academia, and there were basically three keys to mastery that came up over and over again. Three keys to mastery any vocation. Number one, apprenticeships, right? Uh, number two, purposeful practice. So I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are familiar with the 10,000-hour rule. It takes 10,000 hours of practice to get world-class at anything. Uh, But the the important distinction is that that's purposeful practice. And then the third key to mastery might be the rarest in our time is discipline over a long period of time, sticking with something long enough uh, to get really, really great at it, and where you're not just falling in love with the vocation, uh, but getting good enough to stay in love with that vocation over a long period of time. Well, I love that purposeful practice. I loved playing the piano. I just didn't like to practice. <laughs> I didn't yeah. want to put in the time to actually learn to play it well. I just wanted to plank around and then somehow all of, you know, all of a sudden be able to play some sort of sonata. It never worked out that way. That's what I'm struggling with with my five-and-a-half-year-old right now. So I, I feel your pain, Georgie. Um, can you speak to the importance of the lost art of apprenticeship, which used to inform many as to what their one thing uh, might be? Yeah. So, again, the apprenticeships came up over and over again as one of the three keys to mastery. Pretty much everybody I interviewed said they had some form of apprenticeship. Uh, and in the book I talk about, there's basically two types of apprenticeship. There's the direct apprenticeship, which is what we think of when we typically hear that word. So I have a personal relationship with and direct feedback from somebody who's already mastered that craft, right? Uh, And then there are indirect apprenticeships, right, which I think are more common today. This is teaching yourself how to do something on YouTube, right, or reading Mm -hmm. a book about a great entrepreneur that you want to strive to be like. So both are really valuable, indirect and direct apprenticeships, but by far the most valuable are direct uh, apprenticeships. All throughout the book, uh, I saw this time and time again, the world's most masterful people that we talked to tended to have somebody mentoring them and really pouring into them, getting to know their specific strengths and weaknesses and coaching them along the path to mastery. I so appreciate it, as I mentioned a moment ago, that you interviewed dozens of world-class professionals, and it helped us to see that we may have more in common with them, uh, that they started out, as many of us do, at the beginning. Uh, Was there a single profile in Master of One that was particularly uh, interesting to you or influenced you as you think about your own mastery of one thing? I loved studying the life of Mr. Rogers. So mm-hmm. I, I did not grow up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which is weird. I was born in 1986. It's like everybody my age grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, but when the documentary about his life came out a couple years ago, I, I, I fell in love with it. I immediately read the first full-length biography on Rogers by this guy named Maxwell King, uh, who we actually just had on my podcast. And I just fell in love with Rogers. He, he just quickly became a quick hero for me uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, he 
seemed to be uh, one of the most consistently Christ-like people I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that shows up in the biography, shows up in the film. But the second reason is he was such a good picture of the path to mastery that I talk about in the book. You know, Fred Rogers, when he was young, he had a ton of different interests. He was interested in music composition. He was interested in early childhood development. He was interested in television. But he was always looking for the single thing, the single direction where he could apply all those varied interests in a very focused way. He wholeheartedly believed that in order to do his most exceptional work in service of his neighbors, in glory of his God, he had to be ruthlessly focused. That's, that's a theme that kept coming up in his life in the biography. So he was incredibly inspirational. And I, I, I talk pretty deeply uh, about his life in the book. Mm-hmm. Now, we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you how our listeners can connect with you and how they can find out more about your book, Master of One. Sure. Really easy to find me, really easy to find our podcast called Mastery in the Book. Everything is at jordanrainer.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-Y-N-O-R.com. Well, this seems like a great book to gift to someone who is at the beginning of what they hope will be a flourishing career, as well as those who have been uh, working for a period of time and want to perhaps refine uh, their focus. Great book. I really enjoyed it and uh, enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me, Georgian. Thank you so much. Once again, the book is titled Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. Jordan Rayner, the book is published by Waterbrook. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, most of us have been sheltering in place for more than two months now. There are some areas that are opening up, but how do we know how we're doing? What's the status of the pandemic? Well, my next guest says that moving forward, testing data is going to become important to contextualize the infection rates. How do we interpret what's happening and understand uh, what we need to do moving forward? Well, joining us to talk about that is Norbert Michel. He's the director of the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. And I so appreciate your joining us to help us better understand how we might um, interpret events as they uh, develop moving forward. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I think one of the issues that many of us have questions about is testing and how testing data influences our understanding of what's happening. The more tests there are, the more likely cases are going to be identified um, linked to the COVID-19. Talk a little bit about testing and how important that may or may not be moving forward. Well, that's true. It's very important. Uh, It helps helps us identify who does and doesn't have it and therefore deal with the problem in a very targeted way instead of just sort of saying, oh, okay, everybody stay at home. So it's very important to get that data um, and, and, and deal with the cases that we find directly. Now, I know that your colleagues, you and your colleagues at the Heritage Foundation have built a tracker that uses publicly available data to provide some basic information on a county-by-county basis about the disease. Describe that resource and how it helps us understand whether or not uh, the the pandemic is spreading, progressing, receding, and uh, how we can better understand what's actually happening. Sure. uh, We do. We have a tracker, and it, it uses case data. So it's updated every couple of days. Uh, and it uses daily cases on a county level, and we track the rate of, well, we track the number of cases 
uh, each day and cumulatively. And we calculate the rate of change in the new cases every day um, and look for a trend. So the main driver that you see on the map is whether the trend in new cases is flat, increasing, or decreasing. Um, but you have to go further than that because you might have a county that has an increasing trend, but it might only have, say, five or six cases in the last 14 days. Uh, so we provide that information as well, where you can literally see the actual raw number of new cases. And then we tell you whether uh, the, the, the total amount, the cumulative amount of cases in that county, uh, all the way back from January through whatever the most current day is, uh, right now, June 2nd, um, we give you the population in that county, and we give you the cases in that county as a percentage of the population, and we rank that throughout all 3,100-something counties in the U.S., and we tell you if it's a low or high population density area, uh, which, you know, in, in, at least on the East Coast seems to matter. And um, you can pick any county you want. <laughs> so uh, all counties and Washington, D.C. are all on the map. Um, and you can learn quite a bit about how the things, how things are progressing in your county. One of the things that I found surprising that the uh, tracker revealed was that certain areas have seen a disproportionate amount of cases, a disproportionate number of cases. Uh, and you focus on 30 counties that have registered the most deaths from COVID-19 account for 45.7% of total cases but only 15.4% of the population. Now, that's an interesting revelation. Any explanation as to why that is the case that might help inform us as we move forward and things open up further? Sure. Now, now that's, uh, that technically, you won't see that information uh, in, a, in a very discernible way on the tracker, though. So I just, I just want to mention that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but if you look at the overall statistics in the U.S., what you see is from the very beginning all the way to now, everything, total cases and total deaths, are highly concentrated in the Northeast. Um, and a lot of it emanates from the New York, New Jersey area, which are two of the most dense population areas in the United States, or the two most. Um, and uh, you also had a very large amount of nursing home deaths in those areas, there were some bad nursing home policies uh, where if a patient for, was from a nursing home, the hospital sent them back to the nursing home without extra precautions to make sure that the disease didn't spread within the nursing home. Uh, that was a tragic mistake, yes. um, staying out of the politics of it. But that's but that happened. And um, if you look, you know, I, I couldn't. I can't give you the the absolute 100% cause, but I can tell you that those counties in the Northeast are all connected by the commuter railway system uh, between Philly and Boston, and you've got an enormous amount of international flights coming in and out of those areas, uh, as well as the commuter rail. So it kind of makes sense that <laughs> that, that, that that's what happened there. Um, but if you look at the, the, the rest of the U.S., um, you can find just about the same amount of the population, same share of the population, has actually 
one or no depth. Uh, so it's a very, very different picture outside of the Northeast. Yeah, yeah. And then that holds even for the even for the West Coast. It's very different than on the than on the Northeast. Uh, we talked about the nursing home population and the fact that they may be underreported. Another population that you mentioned in the, uh, a column that I read recently by the Daily Signal is the prison population. Do we have a clear understanding yeah. of how this pandemic has impacted that population and whether or not those numbers belong with the general population? So the answer to your first part of your question is no, we do not have a clear picture. <laughs> mm. Um, and, and it's, it's, I, I would say maybe even worse in terms of the fuzziness of the picture is maybe even worse than the nursing home picture. Um, but states have not been, uh, all states are not and counties are not releasing this data in a uniform manner. And we really don't have an idea, but we do know from some, some counties that have released the data, uh, some states that have released data and some independent studies that the, that various prison populations have have found a very large percentage of inmates with positive cases, and then whether that whether that group goes into the reported case total or not um, is at this point you know practically anybody's guess. Um, I think in many cases it has not, and in some cases it has, um, and in most cases you have to ask. Uh, health officials, if they're doing that, <laughs> so it, it, that that is something that needs to be sorted out. Are you optimistic moving forward as uh, counties and states and different areas across the country are opening up that there will be sufficient attention given to testing to interpret uh, the pandemic and its impact in certain areas, um, whether it's pr- progressing or receding? Are you optimistic that we're at least preparing to move in the right direction with testing? <laughs> um, well, I think in, in terms of the the testing availability, I think yes, I'm I'm optimistic there. I mean, we we definitely have improved our ability to conduct tests. Um, we are conducting more tests, and that's and that's on an on the, on an increase. You can even get home kits now, uh, mailed to you, emailed or mailed to you, shipped to you directly. So in terms of being able to test people, yes, I, I, I'm optimistic uh, that we're going in the right direction. But in terms of uh, uniform reporting and careful reporting mm-hmm. of the data, I'm not. No, uh, we had an incident here in Virginia just this last week where Fairfax County set up a testing facility and it was you know, one of those sort of free, quote unquote, free testing. And 80% of the people who came for the testing were from Maryland. So, which, which is fine, except that, except that if the county reports that they gave all these tests, it makes the data look very different than if yeah. those people were from Maryland. So, um, that, that's still, all that sort of stuff really does need to still be sorted out. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll sort it out. <laughs> Norbert, yeah, Michelle, thank yeah. you so much for, for talking with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, and one other question. How can our uh, listeners mm-hmm. access this tracker? Oh, sure. Um, if you go to the, the Heritage website, uh, we have, uh, let me see, I don't, the URL is a bit, a bit long, um, but we have a dashboard set up and 
it's it's got all of the COVID stuff that we've done, including the tracker. So if you if you Google heritage data visualizations, you'll you'll get to that page. Yeah, it's a pretty easy page to, to navigate. So I think people will be able to find it. I appreciate the work that you've Good. done yeah. and for uh, talking with us here today. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Again, Norbert Michel, Director of the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. Just interesting to monitor what we do know. There are certainly things that we probably should know and do better, but it's interesting to see what we can at this point know and then to uh, help us interpret what's happening. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we will be back. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in the Salem-Kaiser School District, Superintendent Christy Perry said about 100 high school students have still not uh, no contact with their teachers, despite the fact that they're supposed to be learning at home. They call it distance learning. Well, school districts all across the states of Oregon and Washington have had a pretty tough time adjusting to this distance learning. At this point, with the school year pretty much wrapping up, most kids have participated in some form of distance learning, but there are some who haven't even logged on yet. In the Kaiser, uh, the Salem-Kaiser School District, Superintendent Christy Perry said there are about 100 high school students that still have no had no contact with their teachers. At this point, the district staff have tried uh, making phone calls, reaching out in other ways. In an attempt to make some sort of connection, staff have been uh, going in person to the students' homes to check in. Uh, one uh, teacher, Arthur Horton, who goes uh, by his Middle name Lee is one of those staff members. During the typical school year, he's a student mentor at McKay High School. He loves kids. He misses them. He says he has a listening ear, and uh, someone encouraged uh, him to check on the students. Well, during the pandemic, he said he's knocked on 30 to 40 doors trying to connect with students who never connected with their teachers. Other staff in the district are doing the same thing. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm coming to your house. We care about your situation and not only the academic part, just to see that you're healthy, healthy. Uh, and you know what I mean. It's everything uh, going all right. How's your household uh, holding up and all of that? Horton said students who haven't started distance learning often tell him they're overwhelmed. Their devices aren't working or with school out of sight, it's also out of mind. So we had about 100 students across our high school that we haven't been able to reach and engage in distance learning. Uh, the principal says that she has nearly half of those students uh, from the alternative school. Uh, they might be students expelled from school. They could be disenfranchised with school to begin with. She said the students who attend the alternative school might be working jobs to support their families or they uh, could be teen moms. So there's a lot, uh, number of variables. While the majority of the 10,000 high school students in that district have participated in distance learning in some way, with 100 of them still slipping through the cracks, um, they still see that there's a lot to do. The push they're making now for kids uh, who need it is to encourage signing up for summer school. It's not mandatory. It's optional, but uh, maybe the thing that keeps them from falling further behind when presumably schools reopen in the fall of 2020. We can only hope that's the case. Well, Wednesday was the seventh night of Black Lives Matters, a protests that started following the death of George Floyd who died on the 25th after a Minneapolis officer knelt on his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Fewer protests took place nationwide, but small collections of people stood on street corners in many Oregon cities. 
In Salem, more than 100 protesters held up signs and chanted at passing cars at about 3.30 on Lancaster Drive in front of Willamette Town Center in Salem, according to the Statesman Journal. Protest organizers, the 19-year-old, said that they wanted to protest on that street because many people drive on that road. They moved to, to the town center's parking lot for an open mic at about 5.30. In Hood River, the Hood River News reported that about 150 people lay down on the street blocking the exit 63 overramp uh, bridge as part of a protest honoring Floyd. Uh, Hood River police chief uh, responded at about 6.30 calling the, uh, to a call that people were lying on the road to Oregon State Police troopers parked to the north uh, and cars were directed to another route to avoid hitting the protesters. In Monmouth, uh, photos posted on Twitter on Wednesday showed people gathering at about 5.30 for a protest at the intersection. Uh, there, they held up signs, raised their fists, and chanted, Black Lives Matters at, Matter at uh, passing cars. In Happy Valley, thousands of people, many wearing black clothes and carrying signs, met at Clackamas High School at about 6 p.m. for a Black Lives Matter march. The participants marched to Happy Valley City Hall, observed eight minutes of silence for Floyd, and then marched back to the high school, according to KATU. Another event in Sisters, the Nugget newspaper reported that um, uh, Justin uh, Veloso of Sisters participated in a single-person protest at the corner of Locust Street in Oregon 20. He held a cardboard sign that said, Stand Against Racism, a sign that read, Justice for George Floyd was taped on the fence behind him. In St. Helens, hundreds of people there protested police brutality by holding up signs for passing cars and marching in the streets. In Forest Groves, uh, videos posted on Twitter showed hundreds of people once again gathered around the big flag of Pacific Avenue. In Newport, uh, videos posted to Snapchat and eventually featured on the uh, another Twitter page showed protesters gathered in the streets of Newport as they listened to speakers, marched, held signs, displayed messages such as Black Lives Matter to passing cars and protested pre- police brutality. At one point, the group led a chant shouting, racism sucks. Might need a little writer there. And in Portland, protests continued for the seventh night in many areas of the city. The sixth night of protesting has uh, commenced with a group of over 100 outside the federal courthouse. In Beaverton, about a half dozen people stood along Beaverton Hillsdale Highway about 7 o'clock, silently holding protest signs. We'll see what um, what the outcome is as the case of the four police officers will ultimately, and it won't be soon, uh, will ultimately be brought before the court. Um, if there were appropriate charges that could actually apply to the situation and not politically motivated, that means they would most likely walk for whatever role they played in all of this. So it'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out, but uh, these are the events as they're unfolding right now. Meanwhile, Portland uh, police uh, shot tear gas and pepper spray at protesters in Portland after reports of projectiles being thrown from a parking garage. Um, Portland police warned that they would use force to protect officers after yet another night of violent clashes between rioters and law enforcement that resulted in multiple officers being struck in the face by objects thrown at them. Thousands of peaceful protesters, and sadly, their roles are being overshadowed by the violent demonstrators. Uh, Thousands of peaceful protesters in Oregon's largest city knelt or laid uh, uh, with their hands behind their necks during demonstrations that began early on Wednesday in solidarity with George Floyd, an unarmed uh, black man that died at the hands of several Minneapolis police officers who have since been charged. But as night fell and the majority of crowds dispersed, pockets of violent uprisings began to grip the streets of Portland for the sixth night in the row where no, um, no curfew is uh, in place any longer. 
Well, in Minneapolis, uh, evangelicals there um, and dozens of evangelical churches are joining together to help Minneapolis as protests against racism and police violence have rocked that city and destroyed um, uh, minority neighborhoods. In the week after the death of George Floyd, local evangelicals have participated in a citywide response, donating food supplies and rallying volunteers for cleanup efforts. But as church leaders consider the long-term needs that will continue when the news cycle and national attention move on, they've realized how important it is to work together to coordinate their responses. People want to just do something, but that doesn't mean we know what to do, said the engagement pastor at one church in St. Paul. We're really trying to be effective by listening to the churches in the neighborhoods uh, that are affected and doing what they tell us to do. Uh, one uh, church leader uh, was more uh, one of rather more than 250 ministers who joined a Zoom call on Monday to discuss ways that churches can collaborate. The call was organized by Transform Minnesota, an evangelical organization that brings pastors together to wrestle, or wrestle rather, with social issues. And it's heartening to see that the church recognizes whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, um, when we have this kind of upheaval, there's a role for the church to play, not only in helping to establish peace, but to address the issues of great concern at the same time. So I'm, I'm heartened uh, by that, um, that the church is responding in the epicenter of where this event uh, took place. I want to mention that Father's Day is coming up. How would you like to help make Father's Day extra special this year? Well, enter our Father's Day giveaway, and you could win $1,000 in cash for your dad. Uh, we made it easy to, par- to participate. Rather, Just go to kpdq.com and enter the keyword FATHER. And to increase your opportunity to win, you can enter once each day now through the 12th of June. Plus, we're providing you with bonus entries you can earn as well. So don't wait. Enter today at kpdq.com. That's pretty cool. $1,000 for your dad. I'd so enter that contest if I could and my dad were still living. Also, another giveaway, Home is Where the Heart Is, is doing a giveaway. Now through the 14th of June, we're partnering with uh, realtor Gloria Hahn to give one local KPDQ listener a $200 gift card to either Home Depot or Macy's. We would love for you to participate. And where do you find out? kpdq.com. Look for Home is Where the Heart Is giveaway. A lot going on at that website. So check out kpdq.com periodically. And who knows what you might be eligible to win. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. What will eating look like, eating out look like in the coronavirus era? That's a pretty good question, as uh, most of the counties in the state of Oregon have made it through phase one. Many are requesting phase two. What about Multnomah County? We haven't even made it to phase one, and we've still got about a week and a half to go. But the great opening is upon us. Next week, Multnomah County is expected to join 35 other Oregon counties already under the governor's phase one. The plan that allows restaurants to start cautiously inviting customers back into their uh, dining rooms. But what will it be like inside a restaurant? I've seen friends Facebook posts where they're sitting inside a restaurant and they're just thrilled that they're eating someplace beside their kitchen table. Will there be seating next to uh, tables filled with stand-in mannequins, like restaurants in Washington, D.C.? Will they find themselves eating in two-person greenhouses or under protective cones 
as diners in Holland and France, respectively, have done. One thing's pretty certain, the new normal is going to be anything but normal. Well, through this whole pandemic, the central theme for everyday life is distance, distance, distance. In fact, I feel somewhat guilty as I'm approaching someone in the grocery store or on the sidewalk and we immediately start to to part from one another. They're heading in a direction opposite of me and I'm heading in the direction opposite of them as if we need to cry out, unclean, unclean. We're wearing masks, we're friendly, but distance, distance, distance. Well, the same is going to be true inside restaurants, as Oregon's reopening plan calls for customers to be separated by at least six feet. Now, I guess that's with the person with whom you're eating, as well as others who are seated in the restaurant. Um, At one restaurant in southeast Portland, um, which I I don't think they're open just yet, they figure that means that they could fit as few as four tables in their uh, restaurant. Other restaurants and uh, bars report similar numbers, even after each of Oregon's 36 counties started to reopen, it could be months before people feel comfortable eating indoors again and eating, well, next to their neighbor. Lots of uh, restaurants are taking it to the streets. Civic leaders across Oregon are responding to this issue. They're waiving permitting fees and fast-tracking applications to open more public spaces for restaurants, potentially allowing um, more of an alfresco dining experience uh, like in European countries. Now, some places have the luxury of space to do that. Others, not so much. Already, some restaurants and bars are crafting plans to expand into nearby parking lots, rooftops, or even some side streets um, here in the state of Oregon, weather permitting. Well, masks have emerged as a political lightning rod all across the country. The CDC recommends wearing them um, in public settings uh, where other social distancing measures are difficult to maintain. Last month, Governor Brown asked us, Oregonians, to be kind and smart when it comes to wearing masks in public and has required them of restaurant employees. But the governor left the question of whether to require masks of customers to individual businesses to, well, those individual businesses and their customers. On Mother's Day, Troutdale's Sugar Pine Drive-In became one of the first Oregon restaurants to require face masks or coverings for customers picking up takeout. We're not being trendy, we're being safe, said the co-owner. Expect many other businesses to follow suit. And uh, if you're sitting sitting along a a bar-type setting, um, again, sitting six feet away from the person to your right and to your left. We may also see temperature checks. They've become the norm at restaurants in China, in Taiwan, and other countries that have reopened their dining rooms. Now, whether or not Oregonians are open for that, not yet clear, but Oregon isn't requiring temperature checks, but some local businesses are considering the practice. Uh, The former um, restaurant... um, Oh, it's uh, I think it's Sean King is the new name. I can't think of the former uh, name. Anyway, on Southeast Portland, uh, five days before shutting down, they plan to install a $400 thermal imaging camera linked to an iPad. It's going to show customers their temperatures as they walk in the door. Now, I'm not sure I want to be temperature frisked, if you will. Uh, we won't be probing you right uh, in the head, which seems aggressive, but we want people to know that they're uh, taking the next level in terms of public safety. So I guess it's a good thing. I'll just have to get used to it or not eat at that particular restaurant. Several state and local governments, they've molded the idea of requiring hand sanitizers or disinfectant wipes at uh, store doors. Uh, moving us from 
optional to required is not out of the realm of possibility for restaurants either. I keep hand sanitizer in my purse at all times, and so I can whip it out at any time I feel it's necessary. Several restaurant owners predict a shift toward a more casual style of eating out. The biggest change we're going to see, says one, is we're going to be in fine dining, or it's going to be in fine dining. Um, the economics of it uh, doesn't work to have the sit-down experience that we've you know, once enjoyed. Depending on how elaborate the food is, you just have more people prepping, more people cooking. You need um, a qualified cook to cook the food, a level of service you're trying to provide requires more floor staff. You might have somebody um, uh, there just to uh, talk about different elements of the meal. The nicer plate the place is, the less profitable it's likely to be. Still, some top restaurants think that they can make a go of it, at least temporarily. Uh, the co-owner of Les Pigeons and Canard thinks uh, customers could get a kick out of an intimate dining experience featuring just him and uh, two-minute um, James Beard Award-winning chef Gabriel Rucker. So you pay big bucks to have a, an exclusive meal. Uh, in planning uh, menus, chefs might think twice about those ubiquitous small plates meant for sharing. Anything that comes in one bowl, cup, or plate and is enjoyed by several people simultaneously may well be off the menu. Meanwhile, Portland's once popular uh, communal tables are probably a thing of the past, or at least uh, they won't be back anytime soon. Um, two uh, communal tables where you sit right next to people you don't know. That probably isn't going to happen in the near term. And then there's the kitchen. While the dining room space is going to be altered, a kitchen where staff often work shoulder to shoulder can change only so much. Imagine cooking over a hot stove dozens of meals with a face mask on, which you will be required to wear. At downtown Portland's 150-square-foot uh, kitchen at a restaurant called Love Bazillion, um, they say it's not much bigger than the restaurant's original food cart dig. Still, the tight quarters might not matter Nearby office workers aren't allowed to return. I'm not sure I'm going to be hiring anybody, says the owner. Most of my customers are office workers. Uh, are they going to be coming back to work ever? And that's a big question for a lot of restaurateurs that do a midday business and not so much on the evenings, in the evenings or on the weekends. What about buffets? I had a, a conversation with Clark Hilton uh, just yesterday about uh, buffets and all-you-can-eat restaurants, maybe that uh, will go and never return. One business sector at severe risk of being left behind is the self-service restaurant, including buffets, salad bars, uh, conveyor belt sushi spots, specifically uh, currently prohibited from operating as usual. So you've got that. Um, some are planning to come up with whole new ways of maintaining social distance at a buffet table, but then again, people are uh, picking and choosing, grabbing what they want in a salad bar, that may be out of the question. Um, and then that open bowl of mints, uh, matchbooks, candies, toothpicks, other niceties sometimes found as you leave the restaurant. Just consider how many unwashed hands may have fondled those mints before you, and uh, you can forget that practice, at least for now. And then paying with cash. Is that going to uh, be a thing of the past as well? Well before the shutdown, uh, one restaurant began double washing all their surfaces with a highly concentrated cleaning solution and bleaching customers' money using gloves and tongs. At the time, it seemed like an overabundance of caution, but by April, most restaurants were allowing customers to pay for takeout in advance over the phone. No, uh, no cash, no filthy lucre. You could only use uh, a, a card. And then what about self-service condiments, napkins, and soda machines? 
In the days before the shutdown, Oregon restaurants were already rewriting safety plans to make sure self-service staples, uh, single-use or other available on-demand things were, you know, in good order. Under Oregon's Phase 1 guidelines, those rules are now set in stone. So you may not be able to pick up your uh, uh, your packets of uh, ketchup or other sauces uh, and other things. Uh, you know, they hand you the cup, you get the beverage yourself. Again, things of the past. And don't forget, uh, we're being reminded, reservations will be more important with restaurants operating at diminished capacities, both to diminish crowds gathered around the host stand and to help government officials trace outbreaks. So that may be what the future looks like for most of us, mid and post pandemic. My guess is at some point, things will return a little more close to uh, normal, but not soon. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, with all the crushing anxiety of COVID-19, the racial unrest that we're witnessing day by day, who are Americans trusting for answers? Well, a recent study reveals where Americans turn when they need direction for things to make sense. You might be surprised where they turn and where they don't. As the uh, COVID pandemic has spread worldwide, nationwide protests are leaving Americans feeling unsettled and vulnerable, if not frustrated and volatile, where they uh, where are they most likely to turn for answers and for justice? Well, the answer increasingly is not to God. Now, we're seeing an increase in people showing interest, but in this survey, overall, where you run to first, the latest results of this inaugural American Worldview Inventory, compiled by renowned author and culture researcher, Dr. George Barnum, reveals that adults today are nearly three times more likely to depend on themselves or others for moral guidance at 61%. Now, that others is a pretty big word. Is that a pastor? Is that someone they know to be a person of faith? So 61%, that includes either themselves, although many of us have come to the end of ourselves during this pandemic, or to others for moral guidance. Uh, Then they are to rely upon the Bible at 23% when making decisions of morality. The seismic shift toward popular opinion and away from faith is not driven solely by the country's secular populace. Well, among the findings in this latest Barna survey is the inaugural American Worldview Inventory, They point out that although Christians were three times as likely to rely primarily on the Bible for moral guidance, still less than half, 48%, do so. Now that's surprising to me when you're talking about followers of Jesus who choose not to look to God's word, but some other source, 48%, only 48% looked to God's word. Political ideology dramatically affects sources of moral guidance. Political conservatives were most likely to rely upon the Bible at 40%, while moderates at 17% and liberals 11% rely on the Bible. They were least, uh, least likely instead relying on their own feelings, beliefs, and knowledge. must be flattering to imagine that you have enough wisdom, that your feelings are reliable enough, and you have enough knowledge that you can pretty much look to yourself to answer all of the thorny issues of our day. Among younger Americans, 18 to 29, at least, uh, I should say, they are at least likely at 15% to consider the Bible and more than um, three times as likely to look to themselves at 29% or family at 25% for direction. So that's apparently where we stand. Uh, you can learn more about this. You can go to George Barnes' website or go to the culturalresearchcenter.com for
for this uh, latest survey. The Cultural Research Center, by the way, is an, at Arizona Christian University. It's located on the school's campus in Glendale, Arizona, and they conduct nationwide research studies to understand the intersection of faith and culture. They're a nonpartisan and interdenominational group, so there's not the leaning one way or the other, but they do provide information that gives us a glimpse into the kind of culture we find ourselves in today and how we can best be prepared to minister to our neighbors who share this culture with us. So it's a rather uh, fascinating. And again, you can find that at their website, which is, um, you find this here, culturalresearchcenter.com. So people are pretty much looking to themselves, maybe a few others uh, for wisdom and direction in not just these difficult times, but in general. Well, today I watched the funeral, the going home service of uh, George Floyd. It was, um, there were moments that were uh, absolutely touching and moving, others that were more politicized, some that were more directed toward policy. Um, but to see the family that professed uh, that they were a family of faith, that George Floyd was a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, and to see the emphasis under these very difficult circumstances, whenever the family spoke, to see the emphasis put on peace and uh, trying desperately to divert attention away from um, and efforts put into a violent uprising. So I appreciated and honor the family for the decisions that they have made. Al Sharpton was one of the, the main speakers, and while you would expect Al Sharpton to be more political, he took some specific jabs against President Trump and the image of the president standing before the church in Washington, D.C. that had been partially burned, or at least an element of the church. It was more of a meeting hall that was part of the church, uh, taking swipes at the, uh, at the president. I would hope at some point, um, I, I realize this is a presidential election year, um, that uh, things are running rather hot and heated these days. I would hope at some point uh, all the parties involved would come together and um, would agree that we need to get to the bottom of the excessive use of force in, uh, by law enforcement. And we're talking about what I believe to be a minority of law enforcement officers, but a culture that uh, quite often, and I talked about it a bit yesterday, uh, the structure and the unions that uh, oftentimes maintain a police officer that the police chief would like to let go, but is prevented from doing so because of the way things are structured. I would hope at some point, um, the voices of influence and those of uh, great passion would be able to come together and agree that um, we can engage in conversation that would ultimately result in some constructive changes that must be made, that must be made if we're going to move forward. And I would hope the Christian community will take a leading role in all of this, that we too would lay aside our political um, biases, and we all have them, in favor of acknowledging the tremendous pain uh, that a segment of our community um, is suffering and that we would uh, try to resolve the issues that led us to this pass. I hope you will, as I am, you will pray to that end. All right, we're out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. I hope you'll join us tomorrow. We're going to do what you expect us to do, and that's take a look at the lighter side of the news. We're going to share the um, interview of the week, however, in the first hour and lighten things up in the second hour of the program. So I hope you'll join us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.